0: Um, we're going to read the scripture. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn 107, Psalm 107. As you're turning there, how many counted the questions in the song? Nobody? None of you have ADHD like I do? (laughs) 12 questions. Right, Lori? Correct. Correct. 12 questions. And the answer, anybody know the answer? God. Jesus. Absolutely. Well done. You all get a B. (laughs) (laughs) psalm 107 just the first nine verses as we go to the lord in prayer oh give thanks to the lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever let the redeemed of the lord say so whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west from the north and from the south Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way, till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Just as we go to the Lord in prayer, I just wondered, if those of you who are carrying heavy burdens, things that are in your mind, if you would be willing to just raise your hand, and as you do, people to just around to see that, and uh, as we pray, just pray for them in particular. But are there any here that are just carrying pretty heavy burdens today, and you'd like to be remembered in prayer, just in general. Yeah, number of hands, other hands. Yeah, if you notice the hand coming up, just pray for that person as we pray together today. Father, we come before you today, and right off the top, we want to say thank you for loving us. It's hard sometimes to imagine that somebody could love us the way you do, that somebody could love us and Uh, in enduring fashion, Uh, love us in a way that never ends, love us steadfastly and steadily. And you do that, Father. It's amazing. I am amazed every day as I think about your love for me. And so, Father, we proclaim our thanks to you, even this morning, for your steadfast love towards us and the greatness of that love. I pray, Father, that you would renew in us a reminder that that love is not conditional, That though we are assailed by circumstances outside of us, and though we battle with sin inside of us, that um, your love will never leave us. It will never depart from us. It will never abandon us. Father, your love disciplines us. Your love constrains us. But your love will never let us go. Would you remind your people of that, even this morning, Father? Those that are gathered here and those that are listening online that we would be overwhelmed not only with the knowledge of your love, but with the actual feeling of your love, to know that it is steadfast and sure towards us. Father, as we read this particular portion of the psalm, we realize how much the psalmist is concerned with his soul. He addresses the fainting soul. And Father, there are some here who have a fainting soul. It is just beat up it is weakened it has been done in by the circumstances of the world and it just needs to be strengthened it needs to be renewed it needs to be revived father would you renew would you revive would you strengthen those amongst us who have a fainting soul those who amongst us have been just beat up by the circumstances of our weak and just need your help our soul needs your help oh father help your people Father, the psalmist talks about a longing soul, that you will satisfy the longing soul. It's a way of describing a frantic soul or a soul that is here or there, a soul that is just caught up in all the uh, issues of life and all the issues of the world, and it can't find rest. It can't be settled. And yet you say, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I will give rest for your souls. Thank you, Father, that you give rest to the frantic soul. And Father, to the hungry soul, some of us are simply hungry physically, Father. There are things in our lives that we don't have enough money to, uh, to, to meet those obligations. Um, even amongst people here in the West, we can have those times where we just don't know where our next meal is coming from. Hard to believe in the fact that we live in the circumstances that we do, but Father, there are also those who are hungry spiritually. Father, would you satisfy our needs, both physically and spiritually? Would you grab a hold of our souls and say, you are safe, you are secure, you are well fed? Father, I pray for this congregation. You saw many of the hands that were lifted just a few moments ago, people who have walked in carrying incredible burdens some circumstances that they are facing. Maybe some don't even know what they're wrestling with, but... Father, we saw those who raised their hands. Maybe they were in front of us. Maybe they were beside us. But Father, even right now, we lift up that group of people amongst us that is just in need of help, need of direction, need of healing, need of provision, need of your sustenance. Father, need of wisdom from above. Would you grant the desires of their heart, we pray. Father, we do think of the Sorensons as they are just facing some difficulties at this present time. Father, may your peace, which passes all understanding, guard and direct their hearts. And Father, in these next few days, as things unfold for them, may they unfold in a way where they can turn to you and find you to be worthy of praise and you to be worthy of honor and you to be thanked. Father, so many amongst us have suffered this past week. Some of us have been joyful this past week. We thank you for that, for the way that you sustain us. Father, we turn our hearts even now to Ukraine and We can't forget what's going on in that particular part of the world. It is distressing. It is horrifying. It is angering. It is frustrating. Father, we don't know what goes on in the high places of secret rooms. We don't know what goes on in the politicians' rooms around this world. We don't know what goes on in the commander's sheds. We know none of that, Father. But we know, Father, that you look down from heaven upon every single person that you have created. There is not a random person running around out there acting on their own, acting outside of your control. Father, we don't understand how you work. We don't understand why things progress that they do. But Father, would you turn our eyes towards you and help us to be convinced and believe that you actually do look down from heaven and that you do know the beginning from the end and that you are working all things out according to your plan. Father, sometimes we are full of fear. Sometimes we are full of anxiety. Sometimes we are full of anger. Sometimes we have vengeful, bitter thoughts. Sometimes, Father, we are frustrated. Sometimes we even rail at you. But Lord, would you calm our hearts? Would you transform us by your word? Would you help us to lift our eyes towards heaven where you dwell and where one day we will dwell? Father, would you help us to recognize that you bless us so richly so far beyond anything that we deserve, even in the midst of these difficult times in which we live. Father, we look to you to help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Good morning. If uh, you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Luke's Gospel, which is where we'll be spending most of our time. This morning, as you turn there, I'll introduce myself. My name's Andrew. If you're visiting with us, welcome here. Uh, And if you're not visiting with us, we're glad you came back. We're taking a little break this week from the series that Pastor Paul's led us in or has been leading us in. We're right in the middle of it on self-talk. And so while this isn't unrelated, it's not irrelevant to that series. Uh, We're taking a break for those of you who are following along in the study notes uh, for that. One of the things Jesus came to do is to establish, to teach, to introduce his kingdom. We see this as a a motif or as a theme throughout all of scripture, but particularly in the New Testament and especially in the gospels, we read of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus talks a lot about. And it's this kind of upending of the kingdom of this world. Jesus comes to introduce a new way, uh, a, a way that is according to God's kingdom. When Mary receives promise that she'll be the one to deliver the Messiah, she's the one to carry this pure, spotless uh, Messiah. She magnifies the Lord. In the quietness of her heart, she prays. And here's what she says in Luke chapter one. She says, he who God has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate of which she was one. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich has been sent away empty. You see, Jesus has come to not start or introduce, but to continue the kingdom of God. And what we see throughout the Bible, Bible, even from the Old Testament, right from the beginning to the end, we see that there's kind of two sides to the kingdom of God. And one way to understand that is that it's already here. But it's not yet here. It's already, but not yet. So if you hear me use those words already, but not yet, that's what I mean, is that part of the kingdom is here. We can see evidences of God's rule and God's reign here around us in the world, uh, in our community, but also around the world and in our hearts. But we know that it's not fully here because if it was fully here, well, the world is still a long ways from where god promises it will be and so in a chapter in, in passages like luke 17 jesus says to the pharisees when they ask him jesus when when's this kingdom of yours coming like how will we know you know when's it coming it's it's time right and jesus says no 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 you're 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 not going to see it outwardly he says you won't be able to say oh there it is or oh it's coming now everyone look you know like it's a ufo he says no the ki- look around you the kingdom is in your midst the kingdom is around you. There's this already component to the kingdom of God, yet it's not yet fully here. When Jesus is gathered with his disciples uh, for the Passover meal before his death on the cross, he says to his disciples, when he breaks the bread and drinks, the, drinks of the cup, he says, I will not drink from the vine again until the kingdom comes. So there's a future event still. There's It's partly come, but it's not yet fully come. And one of the experience I've had, which closely is connected to that, is when I was uh, almost a dad, not yet a dad. We have four kids, but when my first was on the way, was I already a dad? Well, yeah, but but No. I mean, I was ready, I, th- I thought, I was buying the books, I, we got a crib, we you know, put good tires on the car and we bought a car seat and, and we were getting ready because the, the thought of a baby and the storm that is coming is changing my today, my here and now. So as much as, and as, much as I wasn't a dad yet, It's begun already to shape my world, to shape the decisions I make. We started trying to get more sleep. We started to, you know, make better financial choices. And we started to become a little more disciplined because we're going to have a baby in our house. So there's this already but not yet dynamic of the kingdom of God. There's this anticipation which changes our present moment. And so this morning, as we look at uh, Luke chapter six, we'll study together. Uh, I wanna look at two kingdom principles. These aren't, uh, this isn't an exhaustive study on the kingdom of God, but what I wanna do is pull two principles out from Jesus' discussion on, on, in his sermon here in Luke chapter six. And I wanna consider what, what difference does the kingdom of God, the future coming of God's kingdom have to do with the present reality that God's kingdom is, is coming here? What is the future hope have to do with today. And so we'll study Luke chapter six, verses twenty through till 26, looking at these two dynamics. So if you have a Bible, Luke chapter six, here we go. He, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the son of man, talking about himself. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. So in the kingdom of heaven, there's some blessing. There's, there's some favor given to those who are in low places. And he's talking specifically here about poverty and people who are empty and people who are hungry. But this isn't only a physical emptiness and a physical poverty. This is a spiritual kind of poverty as well. Not only people who are hungry, but people who have a desire and an appetite for spiritual things. And we know this because the same account in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, he says. But nevertheless, according to God's kingdom, there's, a, there's favor There's some kind of blessing presently, but also in the future upon those for whom are in low places, despite their low circumstances, despite their standing in this world. Let's continue. Verse 24, Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. There's a contrast here. There's a juxtaposition. There's a bunch of blesseds and a bunch of woes. Uh, We don't say that word anymore. (laughs) Like, it's kind of a warning. An appropriate time for a woe would be when there's danger afoot. Like, I'm not really a backwoods chainsaw kind of guy, but I'm smart enough to wear chaps when you use a chainsaw. Because you may be okay for a while. You may cut all the wood you want, but it's a good thing to use chaps, but woe to the person who doesn't, because the chaps will be there to save your life. But if you don't, you may be fine for a while, but woe to you whom does not wear the chainsaw chaps. It's a warning. It's a solemn warning uh, against those who are, who are in a dangerous place, and it's an opportunity for them to turn around. Woes are all over the place in the prophets. They're heralds of God giving warning about calamity and sure grief, which is to come. And so the woe is not only an indictment, it's not only a, a charge against them, but it's, it's an opportunity to, to make a change, to turn around, put on the chaps. Woe to you, Jesus says. So the two kingdom principles that I want to focus on this morning that come from these two passages uh, will, will help help us Put into practice the future reality, the future coming, the future fulfillment of the kingdom in this present moment. And they are are as follows if you're taking notes. The first is that things will get better. And the second is that humility always wins. Let's begin with the first, things will get better. I want to examine the, the passage we just did in the reverse order that Luke gives them to us. So we'll start in verse 24 to 26 and in a moment we'll go back to the top in verse 20. As I said, Jesus presents these woes. In other words, woe to you who are living your best life now. A few years ago, uh, I don't know, people started saying the word YOLO. You know what that means? <laughs> it means you only live once. It's an acronym, you only live once. In other words, make the most of it, make it count. Like do what feels good, do what sounds good, spend your money on yourself because you only live once. But if you're a Christian, <laughs> even if you're not a Christian, uh, you do live more than once. But Jesus pronounces woes, an indictment against those who are seeking fulfillment and pleasure on this earth. We call this hedonism. And hedonism says that your, your sole purpose, your chief end in life is to find satisfaction and to find happiness. And it's everywhere in our world. The kingdom of this world is a YOLO kind of world. But Jesus pronounces woes upon those whom are full, to those who are laughing, to those who are rich, He says, you've had your fill. You've you've already lived the dream. Like, you're living it now. Your present gratification has trumped your hunger and your appetite for righteousness. You've received, he calls it your consolation. A consolation is is like that participation ribbon that I would get when I was a kid. Like, thanks for coming out. You didn't get the trophy. You didn't didn't get the prize, but, but you showed up. You tried. Jesus awards this indictment and a consolation, he says, that despite your abundance, the deepest desires, not just for food, but the desires of your heart and the desires of your spirit will be left unsatisfied in eternity. And he says, it's to your loss, it's to your own shame, for you sought the things of this world. So even though things in the kingdom will get better, not for you, not for those whom are full, who are rich and who laugh. There's a parable in Luke chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but I'll I'll summarize it for you. There's a parable uh, where Jesus, as he often is, he's he's around a crowd of people, his disciples are there. And someone comes up to him in the crowd and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's some kind of dispute between brothers about who's gonna get, get the riches from the dad. Jesus said to the man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He said to them, to both of them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. <laughs> I don't know if they walked away at that point or if he left at that point, but Jesus keeps going. He keeps dumping it on them. And it says he told them this parable saying, the land, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all of my crops. <laughs> I'm too successful. What shall I do? He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, fool. This night, he says, your soul is required from you and the things you have prepared, the things you have worked so hard for, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich Toward God. So you have all the abundance, but this man is a fool. And when his soul is required from him, his grain will do him no good. You see, it's not the grain's fault. And to the rich, it's not the money's fault. And to the full, it's not the circumstances, the favorable circumstances of life's fault. He's not condemning money as though money's the problem, he's condemning their hearts. The pursuit of money, the pursuit of riches, the pursuit of wealth, the posture towards those things. We call this idolatry. Money and riches and success and right standing has become the desire of their heart. And he says, woe to you. So it's not the fault of the riches. There's nothing wrong with being rich. In fact, God uses rich people to do great things. We just sent a pile of money over to the east to help with the crisis in Ukraine because of people's generosity. So the condemnation isn't against money or people with the money, but it's people who love their money, who aren't willing to part with it. There's nothing wrong with an abundance or God bestowing circumstantial favor in your life. That isn't the issue. The issue is the posture of one's heart and their worship. And what do they do with that money? What do they do with that abundance? What do they do with that wealth? These things tend to lead your heart to a posture of self-sufficiency as opposed to a, a posture of dependency on God. And for those people, the reason why it's a woe is because there's nothing more to be gained in the kingdom. You have received your consolation. And he says too, of those who are highly, highly esteemed, those who are thought well of by others. Again, there's no problem having people like you. I, I like people when they like me, I, I want that. But he says, if you're too worried about pleasing people as opposed to pleasing God, Woe to you. Danger is coming. Things will get better, but not for you. For you have forsaken righteousness. You've forsaken what God thinks about you at the expense of what other people think about you. And he says, even the, false, even the false prophets were liked because they just told people good things. They told people what they wanted to hear. Empty words. And the reason it's a woe is because these people live for the kingdom of this world and one day their their riches their wealth their circumstances that which are great are going to be eclipsed by something even greater they're going to be eclipsed by the glory of God who comes but their consolation is that they've already lived their best life he says woe to you so this warning take heed and don't live your best life now don't live your best life now because you don't only live once you're going to live again you're going to live for eternity. So let's make it count, brothers and sisters. The second thing, which is actually the first thing according to the order of the passage, are the blessings. There's a present blessing available to these people who Jesus describes in verses 20 to 23. There's a present blessing, there's a present favor, but there's also a future favor and a future blessing offered in these first three verses. And the reality is this, according to God's good pleasure and according to God's sovereign plan, each of us in this room, you and I have been dealt a hand or we've been given a lot in life. And no two of us here in this room are the same, but we've each been given a lot according to God's favor. And none of us received a a briefing on this life. None of us received a, a book. None of us received an introduction or a course on how to live. But according to God's good pleasure, According to God's sovereignty, he's dealt you a hand and none of us are perfect. Now I know what it's like to look around you and look at your neighbors and look at the people who sit in the other section and look at the people you work with and go, man, they have it so good. Why is my life so hard? Why have I been through so much grief? Why do I feel like I got dealt a poor hand, but they have a royal flesh? Why is it that this life has been so hard for me? Well, I'd like to encourage you to spend more time with those people. They have a different lot lot in life than you. It may be better in some regards, but I I encourage you, especially, I know some of the stories of these people even sitting in this room. Life is hard. We have been dealt a difficult lot. And so it isn't that your lot is hard and everyone else has it easy. You'd be mistaken to think that. But according to God's sovereign plan, there's an already, not yet, kind of here and now, kind of blessing on people who are going through hard times on people who are struggling. One of the verses we read from Psalm 33, just the very next chapter in Psalm 34, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all. So even though life will get better in eternity, even here and now, there are blessings for those who are going through hard times. There's the here and now kinds of blessings to the poor, both the spiritually poor and the materially poor. Jesus says that there's a unique kind of blessing in that you've got nowhere else to turn. You don't even have money to make you happy even if you could, because you don't have it. You've got nowhere to turn but to rely solely on God. So you're poor by the the earthly standards, but you're rich. He says that you will inherit the earth or you'll receive the whole kingdom. You are rich in faith, poor in materials, but rich in faith. To the hungry, to those who have desires for things that are, are yet to be satisfied, whether that's food or other things, Jesus says elsewhere, he, he uh, refutes the devil's temptation. You know what he says? He says, we don't live by bread alone. So I, just don't, I don't need just a full stomach to feel satisfied. I have deeper longings, which is why he later then promises living water. He promises to be the bread of life. And so your deepest desires your desires for physical things on this earth may not be met, but your desires in the kingdom will be satisfied. They will abound to those who mourn, to those who have lost people in their lives, loved ones, to those who are grieving. He says that there's there's a certain kindness and love and compassion available to you that you can't experience but by mourning. You can experience God's friendship and God's sympathy at your side. God is with you even in your sorrow. This is a blessing to know God's comfort in times of grief, isn't it? We don't just look to the sweet by and by where everything's great and we float on clouds and everything's perfect. There there will come a day where things will be made right, but even in the here and now, you can enjoy the blessings of God on you. So things will get better. The kingdom is yours to be inherited for those who are hungry, who are poor, who mourn. And who suffer? At near the end of the book of Luke, Jesus is sitting uh, by the temple with a bunch of his, his disciples and he's, and he's sitting there and he's watching people in Jerusalem to the temple bring their offerings. And the Pharisees are coming by and they're, they're leaving large donations, massive donations, which are, would be really impressive if you were to stand there you'd go, wow, guys, generous. Wow, he gave a lot. And then an old widow walks along You guys know how this goes, right? She gave two measly copper coins, which by today's value would be about a penny, which we don't even have anymore. She gave basically nothing. But Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. And you go, What? No, no, no. She gave a penny, Jesus. Didn't you just see that? No, he says, She's given more than all of them, for they contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So it's not about the abundance of the gifts that she didn't give, it's about what she kept. She kept nothing for herself. Whereas these other Pharisees, we don't know what they kept, but their their donations were big, but their storehouses were also big. This woman will inherit the kingdom because she gave more than all of them because she gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had to live on. It's these kinds of people who will inherit the kingdom. So even though things will get better, yes and amen, there are blessings to be enjoyed. There are blessings to be experienced by God's sovereign plan on this side of eternity, but things will get better. I hope you believe that. The second, humility always wins. If you turn, don't don't turn there, but if you turn to page two of your Bible, Genesis, around Genesis chapter three, you'll see uh, the, the account where Adam and Eve make a bad decision. And after page two of the scriptures, all the way until the last page, when Christ returns, we see that we are in a world that is fallen, is broken. is not the way God intended because of this little thing called sin. And sin at a fundamental level is, is pride. That was the first sin, really, was pride. It says that Ad, uh, uh, Eve, pardon me, and Adam, who was right there, saw that the fruit was to, was to be able to make them wise. They were deceived into thinking that they could be made like God by participating and partaking in this fruit, by violating God's commands, serving themselves, fulfilling their own pride, that they could be like God. So the first sin was pride. And ever since, at some level anyway, every other sin has its root in pride. Pride is at the fundamental level, the source of pride. The problem is that pride has no place in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, that is. Pro pride's everywhere in the kingdom of the earth, in the kingdom of this world, man. The bigger your pride, right? The, the nicer your car, the bigger your house, sweet. You know, you've got it all, right? But we choose our own way when we satisfy that. See, pride is kind of like a little monster that we carry around with us. If you wanna think of it that way, you've gotta feed it. And the more you feed it, the, the bigger it gets and the bigger it gets, the more it needs. And the more it needs, the more you feed it and then the bigger it gets and so on. And so your pride needs to be fed all the time. And you and I all have pride. And when we feed it, it only grows. So each day, you and I, multiple times per day, we have a choice to make. With every conversation, with every choice we make, with every truth we tell or almost truth we tell, we have a choice whether or not we're gonna feed our pride or whether we're gonna starve our pride, whether we're gonna kill our pride. And this will be a battle which we fight until our pride eventually goes away because it has no place in the kingdom. But in the meantime, we fight against our pride daily, every hour. And the, the, the problem is that our pride, uh, as, as it causes all sorts of other problems, but the problem is it's our pride that actually gets in the way between us and the Lord. It's our pride that uh, takes away from God's work in our life because again, we choose ourselves. And so it's never a virtuous kind of thing. There's no place for pride in the kingdom. Again, we're gonna look at a story later in Luke's gospel. You don't need to turn there, but Luke chapter 18. Jesus is present um, with his disciples and he tells a parable, again, as he often does. Parables are, are stories which real, pack a real punch. They're not true stories, they're not accounts, but they're stories with a purpose. So about a, about a Pharisee and a tax collector, he says this in Luke 18. Starting in verse nine, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Likely Pharisees, okay, who are religious people who do all the right things, keep all the laws. They're, they're pretty impressive people, really. They've got, they're faultless by all standards, okay? But he tells them this parable because they thought they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. They looked down at everyone else who wasn't as good as them. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now a Pharisee would, that would be normal. They would go to the temple and pray. But a tax collector would not belong in the temple. They were, they were, they were hated. These guys were crooks. You know the story of Zacchaeus, right? So Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He wasn't hated. We're told that he's short. It had nothing to do with him being short. He was hated because he was a crook. He defrauded people. In fact, when he had his change of heart, he says, I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta give back to all the people I defrauded. So he wasn't hated for anything other than he was a, was a thief. Tax collectors were, were despised. People were afraid of them. So what's a tax collector going to the temple to pray for? Let's, let's keep going. The Pharisee, verse 11, standing by himself, prayed thus. Listen to this prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. (laughs) What kind of prayer is that? God, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) This is the posture of the Pharisee, the self-righteous Pharisee. And you should sense by now, Jesus, there's sarcasm in his voice here in this parable. There's some irony here, right? The Pharisee who's self-righteous is praying to God. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So even though the Pharisee was, was faultless, was exalted by some standards, was, was uh, perfect in keeping the law. His heart was far from God. He was self-made. His success was credited to his own righteousness. But that doesn't work in the kingdom of God. I mentioned we're in a series on self-talk, and we are. And why I said it's not irrelevant is because it has everything to do with self-talk, what we're looking at today. What, what, are, the, what are the tapes you play in your head? What, what kind of things do you tell yourself? Are you humble? Do you have humility? Do you think you're awesome? That's not humility, but neither is the opposite. Thinking that you're trash is also not humble. That all, both of those are wrong. Here's what I mean. It says in James chapter four, verse six, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The humble are those who seek the Lord. The humble of those are those like this tax collector who understand what they've been given, who understand what they've received. And they live out that reality, that transformation that they've, they were a sinner, they were far off, but they've been brought near. Even a tax collector can, can repent and be saved. So humility is not just thinking that you're low or thinking that you're high, but it's having a clear idea of who you are and what you've received, which has everything to do with self-talk. The kind of things you tell yourself, the kind of things you choose to believe about you, about others, about your position in this world. Paul in Philippians says that we should have the same mind as Christ. He says, though he was in the form of God, though he was God, he didn't count that as something to be grasped. He didn't cling to that while he was here. He gave up his divinity to some extent so that he could take on the form of a servant. And so Paul says, have that same mind among you. Of course, he's not saying be Jesus, that's that's impossible. But he's saying, have that same mind who Jesus, the king of the universe, stepped down that he might serve you and I. Have that same mind among you that the God of the universe would become a servant. That's humility. Let that change your mind and change your heart. See, the kingdom of God is a kingdom where humility always wins. It's, it's this upside down backwards kind of kingdom where we we live just like everybody else, but the total opposite. When I was in school, uh, one of my instructors coined this, this very wonderful theological term. I'm going to teach it to you. The, The term is wow, weird. Wow, weird with a hyphen in between. Wow, weird. And you're like, well, that's weird. Exactly. Wow, weird. Listen, people of the kingdom are supposed to live in a way that is, wow, weird, so that people would say, wow, that, that's weird. <laughs> We're supposed to live like everybody else, just totally opposite. to <laughs> the opposite of what your natural tendency, your natural sinful tendency is. Do the opposite. You've ever been in a situation where maybe you've, confession time here, okay, where you've ever been undercharged or you've been given too much change or something's wrong and it's to your credit. You know, you're on the, on the better end of the deal. You ever gone back and said, hey, you know, you didn't charge me enough. I said, okay, maybe I'm the only righteous one here who's ever done that. <laughs> but the response you get is, you're weird. Why are you doing that? Because it's right. Because we pursue righteousness. It, the, the $6 is irrelevant, but it's, it's a pursuit of righteousness. This is what Jesus unfolds with the kingdom when he talks about turning the other cheek. Like if someone comes to rob you and takes your wallet, give them your phone, give them your car keys. It's weird, you would never do that. But Jesus says exactly, we do not live in the kingdom of the world, we live in the kingdom of heaven. It's weird. You're always told, don't be weird. I tell that to my kids, just don't be weird, okay? We're gonna go, just don't be weird. It's okay to be weird because the kingdom of God is a weird kingdom. It's the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim and came to preach. The reason why, why is it okay to be weird is because when Jesus returns, things will be made right. There will be a great reversal by which those who are low will be exalted. Those who are poor will become rich. Those who mourn, their mourning will be will will turn to rejoicing. Those who are hungry will be filled. Those who are exalted will be humbled. There will be a great reversal where the kingdom of heaven will trump, will take over, will eclipse the kingdom of this world. And on that day, God will identify his children. He will identify his own, those who have lived for the kingdom of God and not for this world. You've heard the term that nice guys finish last. And maybe that's true, maybe. Nice guys finish last, maybe, maybe for a while. You could say humble guys finish last, right? Maybe there's some truth to that, but that's okay. Because it won't always be that way. Because those who are humble do what's right. They're motivated by what is right. So on the day when God calls everything into account, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. God will settle the scores. We don't need to worry about the affairs of every person. And I'm not saying we need to become a doormat for people or we shouldn't pursue justice. We, if anyone, God's children, should be perhaps the greatest advocates for justice in this world. Because God is a God of justice. However... I can depend and wholly trust in the Lord that he will one day settle the scores, that things will get better and I need to be humble. I need to know my place, that I'm saved by grace. And so as we, as we move on, as we close, again, we haven't done a full exhaustive look at the kingdom, but I hope that even these two principles change the way you think about yourself, change the way you think about your life, change the way you think about your circumstances, change the way you think about the future, Change the way you talk to yourself, the way you tell yourself. Change how you see yourself in relation to other people. We're part of a kingdom that will get better and we're part of a kingdom where humility always wins. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live as citizens, as ambassadors, as children of, of of the new kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to be changed, to be transformed by what we know to be true in your word. Help that Lord to permeate through our lives, through our thoughts, through our decisions. Lord, would we know your heart? Would we practice these principles? Would we study your ways? Lord, forgive us and particularly me of of my pride, of times where I've chosen to feed my pride instead of killing it. Father, help me in that, give me strength, give us strength as we seek not to make much of ourselves but as we seek to make much of you. Lord, for those of us who are in times of sorrow and times of grief, Father, would we know your comfort. And Lord, for those of us who are rejoicing and who are in times of of great joy, Father, what a gift it is. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't seek those gifts, seek those circumstances more than we seek you. Father, thank you for the good things that we can enjoy in this life. But Lord, may we seek you more than those things, than those good gifts. So Lord, as we seek to bring your kingdom, as we seek to see your kingdom unfold here on earth, Father, would you help us? I pray that your kingdom would come, Father, and that your will would be done, amen.